Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I've said this before, there is no single topic I discuss more than confidence. Every day, someone raises with me their lack of confidence. So in this special episode, I've asked a Future Women colleague and confidence expert, Jamila Rizvi, to help unpack this quite complex issue. If you don't already know, Jam is Deputy Managing Editor of Future Women, a gender equality activist and best-selling author. In this episode, I want to help every listener better understand what it means when they say they have a lack of confidence and how to overcome it. Jamila Rizvi, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. It's very good to have you. Thanks for having me again. Well, I wanted to get you back because there's something you and I talk about every day of our working life, and that is confidence. So first things first, do you consider yourself to be a confident person? I do. And I think there's a couple of things to unpack there right off the bat. The first one is I say, I do consider myself a confident person because I'm quite confident in my working life and usually that's what people are asking about. I'm less confident in other things, for sure. I also say it slightly cautiously because something in my brain and my body, when you ask that question, I don't want to say yes because I feel like I'm bragging, like it's an achievement to feel confident or it's somehow related to showing off or having tickets on yourself maybe. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what that is, but there was definitely something in me that went, oh, how embarrassing. I, I think I should say yes. But I think we talk about it a lot because we see so many women who immediately say, my biggest challenge is I lack confidence. And that has forced you and I to consider it quite closely. Mm. And I agree. I consider myself to be confident in almost all settings, but there are ones that I'm not. Yeah, of course. I think it'd be a strange person that went into the world and every circumstance they came across, they were supremely confident about their performance. Do you remember the settings when you're not confident? Oh, yeah. Um, I am definitely not confident in anything that involves physical risk. So like at school, I hated things like abseiling and rock climbing and things on school camps because I'm not very good with heights. You know, I'm someone who, uh, whenever I'm put in a position where my brain thinks there could be any kind of physical risk, not physicality so much, not playing sport or going for a run, but if my brain perceives risk, I get very nervous and I am convinced I can't do it. Okay, I'm thinking about all the circumstances where I'm not that confident, but we'll come back to that. Taking a step back, are women in your experience less likely to be confident than men? Both in my experience and my research, that's the case. And... I think it's important to stress there that it's got nothing to do with something inherent to women. It's not like you can look at a male brain and a female brain at birth and say, ah, see this bit, this bit, the confidence lobe is smaller or something like that. 
Testosterone definitely plays some role in like willingness to take risk, but it doesn't necessarily relate to confidence. And I think what that tells us, and certainly what most of the psychologists tell us, is that we socialize girls to eventually become less confident. And then workplaces in particular tend to strip whatever confidence we've given girls. So that explains to a large extent why it doesn't matter whether you're, and I remember interviewing a a young woman with an extraordinary level of academic qualification and was working in the Prime Minister's office at the time who said she lacks confidence every day, (laughs) Um, all the way through to the mums that you and I work with to help them find roles back in the workplace who genuinely struggle all the time with that confidence battle. So that sort of explains that it doesn't really matter whether you're at the top of your profession or struggling in life, there's a confidence deficit. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think also because confidence is not about capability necessarily. Sometimes confidence and capability sit very nicely together. But I think we've all met people who are supremely confident and very much not capable, right? And you and I deal with a lot of women who are not very confident and very capable. Yeah, we do. So let's talk about the sorts of circumstances where people say they lack confidence. Mm, Okay. I think the one that comes up again and again and again is around asking for what you want. Um, So we work with a lot of women at Future Women who come through our programs and they will come through our programs in our executive communication level, right? Where they are high flyers in companies in corporate Australia, they run their own businesses, they're senior in government departments. And when you put them on the spot and say, I want you to ask your boss for a promotion or a pay rise, they are as anxious or nervous about that as someone who's been out of the workforce for 15 years, who is going into their first job interview in ages and we tell them that they should negotiate on salary and they're like, oh, no, no, I don't think so. No, thank you. No. And then there's public speaking confidence. Yeah. So, I reckon that's number two. Yeah. So they, you're asked to give a presentation or a speech. Uh, I mean, I don't reckon anyone who's not had a, a media background like us thinks that they have confidence in that space. I don't think women do. I, I reckon it's really gendered, this stuff. Do you? I really do because I genuinely think it, it comes back to that socialisation question, right? It comes right back to the way we raise little boys and little girls and what we expect of them. And I think we raise little boys to be brave and to be bold and to be sort of take up space in the world. Like, what are you going to do next? And you're allowed to run around and kick a ball and run the team and speak up in class and be a little bit naughty and we tolerate that in boys. Whereas girls, we socialise them to be nice and to be likeable. And I think it's hard to be likeable and confident because being likeable requires you to be what someone else wants you to be or needs you to be at any one point, not what you want to be. Okay, so why do we struggle even just to walk onto stage and say, hi, I'm Helen McCabe, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Summit. Like Mm. just the most basic sentences. That's not challenging my likability. Yeah. Or is it? Because I'm suddenly chosen to do that. So therefore I stand out, therefore I must have tickets on myself, therefore I make myself a target. So can I flip that back on you? When you walk out on stage Mm. to say those few words, what are you scared of? What do you think is going to happen? 
Yeah, so um, you know how much I hate it and would much prefer never to stand up in public. So I am absolutely the individual that says I don't want to do the public speaking piece. Mm. I think it's a whole mixture of things, yeah. Mm. I think it's partly uh, I don't want to be a target. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be judged by what I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. I assume I'll say something wrong (laughs) and, and, and offend someone somewhere. And then it's just the... We should be better done by someone else. Like, I just don't need the grief of this. Mm. So I have a whole range of reasons why I don't want to be that person. Now, as you know, I've had to get over it and I do it and I've had to understand why I get asked to do it Mm. a little bit too. Mm. But that's a separate issue. So I think for most people and a lot of what you've just said, it comes down to a fear of failure. So a fear that you're going to mess it up or that even if you don't mess it up, even if you do a perfectly good job, there will be people that judge you yep. and who talk about you as if you failed or pick it apart to try and find a failure, like what you're wearing, even though what you did was a great job, right? So we're fearing failure and judgment. And fear of failure is, I think, something that we talk about a lot uh, with women who lack confidence. I would argue that for most women, if not all women in workplaces, they don't actually fear failure, they fear public failure. And public speaking is as public as it gets. It's in, you know, it is what it says on the box. If you mess it up, it's a very public feeling of failure. I think most of us wouldn't mind if we sort of failed on our own, alone in our room, you know, try something new for the first time and you're not good at it. I mean, who cares? There's no consequences. But when you fail publicly and people know about it and you have that sense of people talking about you or having had an expectation that wasn't met or feeling let down or feeling angry or not liking you anymore... That's what we're scared of. Yes. And it doesn't seem to bother the men. In fact, it's almost the reverse. It's like, hey, pick me. I'm mm-hmm. the guy that should be on the stage. And it actually, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have a, a moment. Um, it doesn't even matter whether they're any good at anything much. They just get to go up on stage and, more to the point, think they should be on stage. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I, I don't think it's because men are born inherently more arrogant or anything like that. I think it's because we socialise men and women differently. And... We all end up on a spectrum in this space, right? Of course there are women who are supremely confident. Of course there are men who are not confident at all. But at a general level, we all see these patterns. And I think it comes down to how we raise people. There's something psychologists talk about called the locus of control. And men are more likely to have an internal locus of control, which means they think that outcomes around them and in their life are mostly dictated by what they do. Like they have an internal control of their external environment. Women think the external environment is in control of them. So the man will go, oh, I'm on the golf course, I'm playing for the very first time and I sunk that putt. I must be really good at golf. I must have amazing hand-eye coordination. I must have this and that. And a woman will sink the same putt, first time on the golf course, no one's any good at this, they've done it for the first time and she'll go, I must have been the wind. Oh, that was a fluke. Oh, I must be, I don't know, what happened? That was weird. She doesn't go, I must be good at this. And again, I do think a lot of that is about how we socialise people and it's about how we, what we expect from people in positions of power and men inherently have more power in our society and what we expect of the women around them, which is to sort of make them comfortable. Make them comfortable. Mm. All right, let's bring it back to... It's not about a speech. It's about the executive team meeting or the general team meeting in the office. And 
I never know how to put up my hand and say something. I just go, you know what? I don't really know how to even slot into the flow of the conversation. Mm. So I just never say anything. Mm. We see a lot of that. Yeah. What is that about? It's the same thing. This is a really boring podcast. Sorry, folks. Um, it's the same thing. It's what it's wanting to be liked and what's expected of you. We expect men to sit in the meeting and take up space and talk a lot and run the thing. When a woman does it, we kind of go, and when I say we, I mean men and women. Women have this stuff too. We were raised in the same world. We kind of go, oh, mm, should she be doing that? Like, oh, really? Wow. I mean, she's talked a lot. There was a really fascinating study that was done of the Q&A program on ABC, not recently, back when it was good, um, when Tony Jones was still hosting. And they did a review over, I think it was 10 episodes, of what percentage of time each panellist spoke for. Now, there's always five panellists, so you should be speaking roughly 20% of the time each. What they found was that women always spoke less than their fair share only women who spoke anywhere near their fair share and not even at their fair share were the ones who got letters written into the ABC about them complaining that they talked too much. Wow. So it's about our own perceptions. And Tony Jones was floored by the results because he apparently at the time said, no, I stand by the way I, I do things and I run things. I'm really fair. And I'm sure in his head, his perception was that he was being fair. And I think in those meetings you're in, men's perceptions is, that they are being fair. And your perception is you've probably talked enough and maybe you shouldn't talk again because you've already said some stuff. When actually, I doubt you said you're 20%. But I've also, and you know, you're going to roll your eyes at me, but I've also found myself in meetings, you know, deferring to the blokes Mm. and looking to the guy for the answer, knowing full well that the woman in the meeting is smarter. So why do you do that? It's, yeah, correct. You just get used to giving that guy the attention that he's always had and he's expecting. So is it that you get used to giving him the attention that he's been expecting or is it that you're smart enough to know he expects that attention and if you don't give it to him, there might be repercussions? There's a lot of that. Yeah. (laughs) I worked that out as a young... Yeah, well, you're playing the game. You have to. Right? Yeah. I don't know that we're giving any actual practical tips to anyone right now. Um, Look, I think there are some practical tips, so things that you can think about. Another thing I find that a lot of people do who lack power, but women in particular, is that when you do get the chance to speak, you have a really long run-up. So you're running the meeting and you say, Jamila, what's your call? And I go, okay, well, I was thinking, and like, just sort of play with me here because I'm kind of spitballing, and I mean, obviously I've just thought of this. I haven't really thought, and, and I talk for 20 seconds, I haven't said anything yet. I haven't just said, this is my idea. And that's because we're apologising before we say it. And we have a go at women all the time for apologising too much and saying sorry too much. But we often apologise without even saying sorry. We apologise with the language we use around sorry. I think that is understandable because of how we've been raised, but it doesn't mean it's not something you can fix. And I think it's something you can start in emails. Emails is often a lot easier than speaking because when you're talking, you, you you fall into your natural circumstances um, and what you're used to and your habits. But when you're doing an email, you can always stop for a moment and go, I'm going to go back through and work out all the phrases I use that really I'm apologising with. My personal favourite, the one I use all the time is I think. I bet I've said it at least 100 times in this interview already. Mm. I say I think rather than what I'm saying being fact. Even when I say I think the research shows, like (laughs) it is a fact. Mm. And I still sort of cache it. 
I say just a lot. Everyone's got their own little quirks. But I think taking the time to read back your email and go, all right, what can I change here? And when it comes to those meetings, I think, again, you start small. You say, instead of going, I'm going to go in and I'm going to dominate this meeting and I'm going to go from zero to 100, you go in and you say, today I'm going to say one thing. Today I'm going to make a contribution and I'm not going to apologize for it and then I'm going to be quiet. And you just build up slowly over time. And work out what the preamble is that gives you time to get your thoughts in Mm. order because some of that's just about getting your thoughts in order. So the preamble could be, oh, look, thank you for the opportunity to speak. I just wanted to note that Jamila just made an excellent point a minute ago. Well done, Jamila. And by that stage, you've kind of gone, my point. Like just use that time cleverly to say something useful without the apologies. And I think you've actually doubled up on the good things to do there because – What you did just then in acknowledging what another woman in the room said, you're also backing one another in. And we know, I think we've all heard those stories about how women's points get overlooked in meetings and three different women say it. And then when John says it, everyone goes, oh my God, John's a genius. It was even recognised in the Obama White House. The advisors spoke about the fact that the women's ideas often got missed and then they were said by a bloke and they get taken up. Shine theory, which is what you just did, uh, is the idea that you always refer back to the woman who came before you who said something really useful. And you keep building on that so no one can then claim that idea as their own because three other women have said, Helen said it first. And it potentially gives that woman who you've called out or another woman uh, in the room the strength or the confidence Mm. or the courage, is probably the word I'm looking for, to actually jump in after you finish talking. Yeah. And, you know, I I saw it in real time at the Job Summit. Sam Mostyn who we all know, and if you don't know, she's worth looking up. She's the CEO of Chief Executive Women. I think she's only got a little longer to go, but she literally is a leading figure on advocacy for women in this country. She did it at the Job Summit where she had a couple of speaking spots and there were only one mostly or two at maximum. And she acknowledged the woman sitting next to her Mm. and the work the woman next to her had done, who was Ainsley Van Onselen, who wasn't given a speaking spot and was... A bit sad, probably, that she'd gone all the way to Canberra, never to speak. And so she called it out. Yeah. And, you know, it, it then reminded all of us in the room that there were excellent women there who do excellent work. And I've just, while I'm thinking about Sam Mostyn's stories, the other thing she does, and she recommended it at something else I heard, where you're speaking in a group, here's one of the reasons why you might struggle to have confidence in a small team meeting, mm. because you don't agree with anyone. You don't agree with the team dynamic. You don't agree with the group think. Mm. So she often says, I really find what you just said interesting, Jamila, but have you thought about? So she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't ever. She doesn't disagree. Doesn't ever disagree. She just throws in a different perspective, fact. And, you know, I think that is, I really remember when she said that because my natural inclination is to kind of completely disagree with you, which, you know, <laughs> doesn't always go well for me. But. That explains how she's got to the leading Mm. figure in this country in in the advocacy space. I also think it's worth talking about all of this, not just from the perspective of the woman in the room, but the woman leading the room. Because often uh, the person running the meeting will be a woman. And so I think you've also got to think of your role as a leader and your role as even if you're just more senior than someone else in the organisation or you're someone who doesn't have positional power but that people look to, you have power in that situation to gift 
confidence or gift power to other people. And I always think about that, that if there's an outstanding woman, say, who's working with us at Future Women, which is literally all of them, but imagine we have one that's particularly outstanding who doesn't necessarily have the positional power in a meeting, but I want her contribution to be heard. I want to see her promoted. I think she's excellent. You can gift her some of your power. You can say, I really want to hear from XYZ or XYZ said to me the other day, this and that. Could you repeat that now for everyone here? Often that takes a lot less time than hours and hours and hours of your time mentoring someone because we can't mentor 100 people each. But what you can do is you could do that for 100 women in your organisation if you really wanted to. And equally, if you're the person listening to this podcast that's not in that position, it is a way to grab the floor or Mm. the microphone or the conversation by saying, I just want to recognise you know, someone else's work or someone else's thinking. And I think it's worth raising here because this is the conversation we're having. So if you're struggling with your own Mm. thoughts or your own, often I think part of the lack of confidence is getting your thoughts in order, knowing what you want to say. So you've just got to get used to using your vocal cords Mm. in a way. And once you get used to using your vocal cords, the thoughts can come back to you. I always say, figure out the first thing you're going to say, the first sentence. That's it, not the first whole thought. Once you say the first sentence, your brain will do the rest once you're talking. You don't have to think out your whole point and the order of your point like it's an essay. If you can remember your first sentence, you'll be fine. Okay. So your confidence has been knocked around because you've made a mistake, you've done something silly, um, you know people are talking about you, you lost your last job. What advice have you got for people who genuinely had a literal blow to their confidence? How do you reclaim it? I think that's a really good question. And often it depends on position and circumstance. If you're out of work at the moment, my first message would be, there has never been a better time to be out of work. Uh, because Come and em- talk to us. Em- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Employers everywhere are crying out for labour, crying out for skills at the moment. People may well take a chance on you who wouldn't have before. If you're in an organisation and you're still in a job, but you've, let's say you've messed up, in a really big way and your boss has given you a bit of talking to. If you're still there, if you haven't been fired, they have decided to keep you. So even if they've decided to tick you off, they've also decided to keep you. So I think you've got to dust yourself off and focus on the fact that they've made that decision. And I think a lot of what you can do from there is focused on learning from that mistake or that error or that piece of criticism. Many of the women that I've worked with both now and in the past, criticism is taken as a personal affront as opposed to an opportunity to learn. And I say that as someone who's not good at taking criticism, so I'm totally with you. But the more that you can see criticism as an opportunity to make yourself better at your job, the better you'll be. There's been some really interesting research that's shown that women in their performance reviews, whether they're a one-off negative review because you've messed up or a six-monthly performance review, are almost always given less actionable feedback than men. You know, if you were Harold, you sit down and you say, look, mate, if you could change the way you're going about your sales process so that you were selling three of this every quarter rather than two, that's the difference between you and that next promotion. Whereas Helen comes in and in the performance review, it's like, no, no, you're doing well, you're doing well. I mean, like, I think generally, you know, we could be looking at kind of getting more outcomes. But, you know, I think you're doing well and you just got to keep pushing, keep striving. I mean, that's useless. You go away with that. What the hell are you supposed to do? You can't do anything. Harold got really useful, go and do this advice. 
So I think if you're not getting that and you're feeling low, go seek the support, go seek the actionable feedback and say or ask, what do I need to do, Helen, to get you to trust me again? Not, don't do it immediately. Wait a week or two and say, I really want to, I've been working on X, Y, and Z. What do I need to do to get you to trust me again? What do I need to do to get that next promotion? What is it you think that was at the core of why I made that error? I've been struggling to get to it. Because I'm sure you, your boss will know. I think we've got to seek feedback and then be able to deal with it when we get it. I've had at least two or three women in mentoring sessions saying their boss, they've gone into feedback, get feedback, and their boss has said, yeah, 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 no, you're great and we think you're amazing. You just lack confidence. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just like, I just go, what? Did he really? Yeah. Did he really say that to you? And I think, But I think that's a good point, again, because this isn't just about women lacking confidence. This is how, it's not about women fixing their confidence. About, it's also about managers, men and women, fixing how they view the importance of that confidence. How essential is that confidence to the job? How are you selecting people to promote? How are you encouraging people in your teams? A lot of women's lack of confidence comes from the fact that we work in a workforce where the obvious elements of discrimination and sexism have mostly gone, but a lot of the insidious under-the-table stuff is still there. And so because you can't see it, you go, oh, it's me. It's me and my lack of confidence. But I also think ask what sort of confidence do I lack? Do I lack mm. confidence in asking the question of leading the team to, you know, singing happy birthday, the loudest at the morning tea? Or do I lack confidence making a decision? Because confidence in speaking up is kind of a small issue. Mm. Confidence in not making a decision if I'm a leader, mm. I'm paralysed. That's, that's a big kind one. Of, that's a big one, right? Confidence in making a decision, do you have any advice in that area? Yeah, it's something we've been exploring at Future Women Behind the Scenes at the moment, uh, how we could teach a, a module on decision-making, you know, like structures that can guide your decision-making in different circumstances. And when we come up with it, we'll teach it really well, folks. In the meantime, that research does exist. So if you're someone who just cannot make a call, I would say there's a couple of things going on. First, you might not have some structures and some processes by how you mentally run through the complexity that goes beyond a pros and cons list to making a call. Possibly you don't have the information you need. Like possibly if you're a manager and you cannot make decisions, possibly your team isn't working to give you the information that you need to make a decision and you've got to do a bit of work there. And I would say the third reason is probably leaning into perfectionism a bit too much and holding out for perfect rather than settling for good enough. And I reckon that's one of the most important things that I wish I could teach every young woman who are all super high achievers who come through Future Women and in previous jobs I've had. In school, we give girls this, this structure where girls excel, right? Where you do this and you do that and you study for the exam and you get 98 and good. You get very close to perfect. That's what we expect. And we give you a score at the end of it. And you can get almost 100. That's how close we'll get you to perfect. So striving for perfect is not only incentivized, but it's possible, right, in schooling environments. And I think schooling environments really suit girls because there's really clear rules. There's no space for discrimination because you're being tested, right? The outcome is the outcome. And we see it in school results. Girls outdo boys in NAPLAN in year three, year five, year seven, and year nine on every category except year nine maths and science. Every category except year nine maths and science. Like, if anything, we should be asking about how do we better support our boys in school. 
that then women hit work and they think, okay, well, I'll just take what I learned at school or uni or TAFE and I'll just do that again and that'll be enough. And it's not because that's not how workplaces work. We don't want you to get 99. We want you to do a really good job in a smaller amount of time so you can go do a good job on something else. And learning to compromise and learning to settle and where to settle and make that judgment call, I think is often something a lot of girls haven't had much experience in because at school they just threw everything at it. And so you you get these young women who come to work and they're just so desperate to be perfect. They can't finish the work and they can't get it done and they can't make the case and they don't have time for the networking and they don't have time for the whatever else. And they sit there and it's called tiara syndrome. It's not, a, it's not a, like a clinical psychological syndrome. <laughs> it's called tiara syndrome that you sit there at your desk waiting for your boss to one day come and just put a tiara on your head and say, you, you're the best. You're incredible. You're what I've been waiting for. And then the boss never does that. So you go, maybe I'm not working hard enough. Maybe why my work isn't good enough. Maybe I should get another seven master's degrees and then they'll notice me. And so you see women in their 20s, especially in early 30s, racing out to do all these things when really it is often perfectionism getting in the way of just getting the job done. And both of us agree that you and I are like, near enough is good enough. Like, yeah. we just push stuff out the door. I mean, like, if, you know, if, if you're a heart surgeon, you should not listen to us. Mm. I do not think it probably is near enough. Or a neurosurgeon. But, um, <laughs> but um, for most jobs, near enough is good enough. Couldn't agree more. I'm going to finish on fixing women mm. because... I did, I did public school and private school. And a lot of what you're talking about, you know, really goes to this. Public school, boys in the class, all the things you said about. Mm. I go to a private school, all girls, they are yeah. loud, they're noisy, yeah. they're chaotic, they're rude, they're objectionable. They're like the boys mm. in the classroom. It blew my mind. Because someone has to fill the space. And so I really relate to that concept of, you know, it, it's not women's fault. Mm. It's because they're stuck in co-ed workplaces, <laughs> <laughs> which we love. And so the fixing women concept is sort of very dear to my heart. But tell me, you were around when it came out and, you know, we occasionally, you know, do a sense check around it because we do not want to be telling all the women that we work with, it's your fault and you can fix it. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's some fine lines there, right? So firstly, Stop Fixing Women was a book by an Australian journalist called Catherine Fox. And she argued that for too long, the discourse in workplaces was there's something wrong with the women. If they just acted more like men, if they were a bit more confident, a bit more of this, a bit more of that, then if they asked for more money, if they asked for the promotion, then they'd do better. It's the lean in thing too. Yeah, absolutely. Lean in, I think, is another code for it, right? But the reality is women, at least a lot of women, are doing all those things and they're still not getting ahead, right? Uh, So it turns out that no matter how much you lean in, the women actually didn't need to be fixed, right? What needed to be fixed was the workplaces and workplaces were built for men and by men and we just tinkered with them as we added women to them since sort of the 60s and the 70s in big numbers. We've tinkered with the old model. We never said maybe we should have a new model. And so women are in this place that, wasn't built for them and doesn't work for them and it feels uncomfortable and so success is harder to come by as a result. Add a bit of sexism and discrimination on top and that's even harder. So I think one of the things we do well at Future Women is we recognise that, yes, women still need development and training and leadership support like all human beings who work in workplaces do. So we should give that to them because that can be a boost. 
But at the same time, we also need to talk to the workplaces, we need to talk to the managers, we need to look at the structures and the systems, and we need to talk to the men. Because often fixing the men is a better path than trying to fix the women. In summary, you've turned on this podcast because you want the special edition on confidence. What do we advise? I think the first thing I would say is you are not inherently unconfident. Something or a combination of things in your life and in your world have made you feel that way. And what that means is, what that unlocks is, maybe you're actually really good. (laughs) Maybe all of those feelings of I'm not good enough, I'm not sure, I don't think I could do that, maybe none of them are true. (laughs) Maybe they were all planted there by this system that makes you feel less confident. I would say that there are some practical things you can do to help kind of hack your confidence a bit. But the most critical thing you can do is work with other women. And as you get into positions of power, see your responsibility to support the women who work for you and with you to be gifted that power and confidence. Because it's not up to you to change and up to you to be fixed. It's up to the organisation around you who made you feel like that in the first place to fix themselves. And where possible, reframe it. Have that conversation with the two colleagues in your team or the 15 colleagues or the manager who says, I just think you need more confidence. Just say, what sort of confidence are you talking about? What do you expect from me? Do you expect me to lead meetings? Do you expect me to make more decisions? Do you expect me to be louder? Mm. Because that's not who I am. Mm. I'm the quiet person. I'm the doer. I'm not the noisy person. Yeah, to be a leader does not require you to be like the men in Mad Men. There are different models and versions of leadership and all of them are open to you, regardless of gender. I think we nailed it. Yeah, good. Do you reckon? Yeah, maybe. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 